Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. If you're old enough to think back to 20 or 30 years ago, how did you get your news? Do you remember? Back then, you probably read the newspaper, watched your local news station, and maybe if you were an early adopter, you were into blogs or MySpace or whatever. The point is the media has changed a lot, and there's a lot of good things that have happened during this transition. I'm obviously a big fan of the podcast revolution, but a lot of what's happened in this industry has been bad. Commercial and ideological pressures have created perverse incentives for everyone, especially in the digital age. And coverage of major stories from the Iraq war to COVID-19 has been less than stellar for all kinds of reasons. But one of the most consequential shifts in the mediascape has happened on the political right. And Fox News has been at the center of this evolution. And Fox, in case you haven't heard, has been in the news lately. Dominion Voting Systems claims Fox News soiled its reputation with false allegations that the company helped steal the election from former President Donald Trump, all to pump their ratings. Did Fox News, did Fox News personalities know that they were propagating false information on air. Sir, filing two new and explosive lawsuits against a network alleging that she was coerced into giving misleading testimony in Dominion's $1.6 billion. The $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit, billion with a B, that Dominion filed against Fox News back in 2021 is a watershed moment for the media. Or at least it should be. I'm honestly not sure if this trial will have any ripple effect beyond Fox News or if it will even change Fox itself in any way. But it is, I think, a good moment to step back and reflect on the relationship between news and entertainment and politics. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Brian Stelter, a self-described media nerd. He was the host of CNN's Reliable Sources for nine years, the last episode of which aired in August of last year. Before that, Stelter was a media reporter at the New York Times. He's also the author of Hoax, a book about Fox News during the Trump era. If anyone can shed a little light on what's going on in the industry right now, it's Brian. But before we got to that, I wanted to start by checking in about how his life has been since he left, very publicly, CNN. Brian Stelter, welcome to the show. 
Great to be here. Thank you. So what are you up to now, man, that you're not hosting a, a Sunday show at uh, CNN? Are you you're flubbing around at Harvard, I, I hear? Uh, well, I'm figuring out what to plant at my farm this spring. I am picking up my daughter from school this afternoon. I am fully in stay-at-home dad mode, and it has been amazing. But yes, I do have a fellowship uh, at Harvard, the Shorenstein Center, part of the Kennedy School. And I'm starting to write again. You know, it's like, I would say two times a week. I really, really want to write something. So I've been able to do that, which is nice. I think the truth is, if I hadn't gotten pushed off the treadmill, I would have just kept running. And getting pushed off, I was able to stop and say, whoa, what was I doing for so long? Like, that was 20 years, basically, of, you know, obsessive media coverage. And I had not even thought to stop or slow down and take stock. So this period of being able to think about it has been amazing. You know, there are so many strange quirks about the media and what we do right and what we do wrong, how we do it. And, you know, it's good to look at it from the outside for a little while. Yeah. I mean, you're... Your old home, CNN, is, um, how should we put it, going through a transition at the moment? I was going to say thriving. (laughs) Your departure from the network was sort of the public beginning of that transition. I mean, what do you make of what they're doing now as a network? Well, we would need an hour just to talk about that, I think. I want what's best for CNN because I think it's a very important global brand and it needs to be strong. And that's regardless of ownership or the anchors or the producers at any given time. CNN is so much bigger than any one person or team. And I think a lot of what I see right now is really strong. The news muscles of the institution are very strong. And that's what has to be protected no matter what. There's also a lot of noise and chaos and gossipy stories about what happens behind the scenes and and what happens with, with some of the anchors. And that, to me, is a distraction from the news muscles that actually are very strong and are healthy. So I feel for my colleagues when there's bad press. I feel for them when there's bad ratings. And uh, I'm an eternal optimist. So I'm of the view that a few months from now, there'll be some big story and the press will turn and it'll be more positive again. And it'll be a new chapter. Now, does that sound like total bullshit? (laughs) Maybe a little bit. It is actually genuinely how I feel, but it's, you know, it's confusing. It's a a confusing thing because basically I'm, I'm talking about people that are my friends there, you know? Well, yeah, let me tell you why I said maybe a little bit. (laughs) I don't doubt anything you just said, the sincerity of it. I mean, I think, do you even know really why they canceled your show? I mean, as you said on your last show, it it was one of the highest rated weekend shows that they had. Do you know why they cut it? I don't know why. And I'm at peace with that. Like, I'm very content with not knowing. The way I like to say it to people is, I know the show was popular and I know it was cheap to produce. So I know that they didn't pull the plug for those reasons. In Twitterville, there's speculation about politics, speculation about branding and CNN changing its brand. When I watch CNN, it feels like the CNN that I worked at for the most part. I'm still a loyal viewer. You you know how like you probably experience this with other people sometimes like somebody will will leave a job or they get pushed out of a job and they'll hate the place and they'll like trash it and they'll they'll never watch or they'll never read it again. I'm the opposite. Like I I tried to cancel cable for a month and I couldn't. I missed cable. I I had to to get back on my Comcast addiction. So I still watch a lot. I still listen to a lot in the car. I still have so many friends there. You know, and the reality about cable news is the ratings rise and fall. I almost view CNN like a buoy in the middle of the ocean. And obviously, when there's a hurricane, the water rises and there's a lot more attention. And then the water subsides and the ratings subside. So, you know, there's sometimes a bad knock about the ratings. But what's most important is, regardless of the ratings, that the news brand remains strong and remain paramount. 
And, uh, you know, look, I was doing one hour on, on one day of the week. I loved doing it, but I'm also really content. I feel like I finished it, if that makes any sense. Like, I feel like I, what I did was complete, and that's a good feeling. So that's why I don't look back and say, oh, what, what happened? What, 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 what happened there? I have no idea what they're trying to do, and uh, I'm not sure if they know what they're doing, apart from some vague desire to be more centrist. And, you know, I'll tell you, like... My problem with CNN has always been, and I honestly, I'm not saying this because I'm looking at you right now. I think your show is an exception in this regard because, you know, what you were doing was really more of like a meta analysis of the media business. So it sort of floated above this. But on the rest of CNN, for me, right, they always wanted people to believe that being centrist means that they're not biased. But my feeling is that, of course, they're biased, right? The bias is in favor of politics as a TV show. The bias has always been in favor of entertainment because TV has to be entertaining. To me, that was always the, the only bias that really mattered. And I think a lot of people want to run away from that. Hmm. Yeah, the way I think about it, I, I think about it somewhat similarly. I think about television journalism as being both television and journalism. And sometimes it's mostly television, meaning entertainment. And then other times, you know, it's much more journalistic. We are adding new facts into the world through interviews and reporting. But on the morning when Richard Branson was blasting into space during the 11 a.m. hour when I was anchoring, you know, we devoted the entire hour to that. And that was mostly television, not journalism, right? It was a little bit of journalism, but it was mostly television. And yes, that is the paramount factor, is that it is, it is TV. Yeah. Although I would say they do have a thriving digital operation as well, and I love doing that newsletter, so there's different factors. I think it, it, it's possible that the Donald Trump years reshaped media in ways that everybody is still digesting and grappling with and adjusting to and, you know, processing. And it is easy and tempting for some people to forget what it was like in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Yeah. And the way that Trump was covered, the arguments about coverage, whether he baited people into fighting with the media and whether the media fought back, all of that stuff. I think people's memories are fading already. And I think that's a problem. Donald Trump chose for cynical political reasons to try to turn his base against the press, not to critique the press, but to hate and destroy some major news outlets, the New York Times, for example. He didn't want them to just like write letters to the editor criticizing the Times. He wanted them to cancel subscriptions and actively work against the paper to seek its end, to seek its, its end as a business. And that's an unprecedented situation in the United States. And sometimes we might look back now and say, gosh, yeah, he was mean to the media. No, it wasn't about being mean to the media. It wasn't about nasty tweets. This was so much more existential. I think it's a problem when we look back and we just think, Oh, yeah, you know, Trump and the media really didn't like each other. Like, no, that's that's not what happened. Well, can I push a little bit on something you said there? Because I... Uh-oh. <laughs> like, I don't think Trump really wanted to destroy the New York Times. I think he loved the fact that the New York Times existed. I think he needed the New York Times just as the New York Times needed him. They were both good for each other, right? It was a terribly horrible, mutually symbiotic relationship. That was Trump's relationship with all of media, right? He thrived on it. He needed that attention. He needed that energy. And he didn't get it without the press. I see it, and I I could absolutely agree with your case. I would just point to some of the behaviors, for example, you know, against Jeff Bezos, against CNN and Jeff Zucker, to say that there was also an element of, let me take my perceived enemies off the playing field. Definitely both were true. 
that's uh, that's fair. But I think when we look back and it's like we're gonna, you know, so I think now there's this tendency, and I've sometimes have done this, and many others have done this, to say. Okay, how do we go back to 2014? Can we just return to a 2014 media, <laughs> right? Can we appeal to everybody? Can we make everybody happy? And the answer is no. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. The answer is no. Whatever was broken in 2017 and 2018, 2019, I don't see evidence that it can be put back together right now. Coming up after the break, Brian and I will discuss the broader impact that Trump has had on the media in general and conservative media in particular. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bomba socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. just think we have to talk a little bit about Fox, right? I mean, you kind of wrote the book on Fox News. We've talked about it before. Fox is uh, in the news uh, at the moment with a, a bit of a scandal, or at least what should be a scandal. I'm not actually sure it's <laughs> it's really a scandal for them. For those who, who don't know, Fox News is being sued by Dominion voting systems for defamation because of the lies people on the network were telling about their voting machines in the 2020 election, and because they're being sued, there is a process of legal discovery underway, and we have learned 
quite a bit about what was actually going on behind the scenes, what people at, that work at Fox were saying behind the scenes. Brian, do you just want to maybe sum up what we've learned and, and just what your reaction to the story was as a longtime observer and a reporter on Fox? You have a lot of sources over there. Well, when I wrote Hoax in 2020, and then I updated in 2021, you know, I'm relying almost entirely on anonymous sources. There was one brave staffer who put his name on the record, but it was mostly anonymous sources. And they were saying, you know, this place is out of control. It's been radicalized because the audience has been radicalized. Someone on air who said, I feel like we're being held hostage by the audience. And there were all these anonymous complaints about lack of leadership at Fox. People saying, well, if Roger Ailes was still around, despite all of his abuses, he would have had more control. There were people complaining about the Murdochs being too passive and not being involved enough. There was just this, this general sense that Fox was moving even further away from being a news brand and even more into this extreme opinion brand. And all of this, you know, this was anonymously sourced. And now I see it all on the record. That's what's amazing to me about this case. You have Tara Carlson in his own words, on the record. You have all these producers and executives on the record admitting to the very problems, the very ills that outside voices have pointed out and internal anonymous sources have pointed out. So for me, it's a little bit of a relief, right? When you, when you write a book or you write an article and people are anonymous and all of a sudden you see it all on the record, that's always a good feeling. You know, you've had your work backed up. And number two, it's much worse than I thought. And that's always the takeaway about a media industry scandal. It's always worse on the inside than reporters know on the outside. Was it really worse than you thought it was? What made it worse than you thought? When I think back to the first few days after Biden was declared president-elect, and I could see some of the Fox audience shifting and turning off the TV and going to HGTV or going to Newsmax, and I perceived there to be a, a little bit of a problem for Fox. And certainly the executives there would say to me, they recognized something was going on. But that, now you read the emails and you see them panicking. You start Carlson and Sean Hannity screaming about it, feeling like the entire network's being destroyed, that everything they've worked for is being ruined. Like It was a much more intense experience for them on the inside than we knew on the outside. And, and that helps to understand and explain, not justify, but explain the behavior that resulted. All of the, the tap dancing with conspiracy theorists and the flirting with voter fraud conspiracy theories. Why did that happen? Because of the panic that was so much more palpable on the inside than we knew at the time. Yeah. And just for background context here, right? I mean, the people at Fox were tracking very closely their ratings, as everyone in TV does and must. And they were worried about being outflanked by more Trumpy right-wing competitors like Newsmax. Which at the time, Newsmax wasn't even admitting that Biden was the president-elect. This right. was a very calculated ploy to try to appeal to Fox viewers. And then one of the emails, one of the executives in D.C. says, weak ratings, bad ratings make good journalists do bad things. I mean, that is a perfect seven or eight word summation of the story. Bad ratings make good journalists do bad things. Now, we can debate the health of Fox's newsroom and how great the journalists are, but there are real reporters there who are trying to get information and they have been suffering inside Fox. So it's a rating story. It's a profit story. It's a lack of leadership story. This lawsuit is about like, where are the bosses? Like, where are the bosses, right? If Rupert Murdoch is so unhappy with Donald Trump's behavior, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he have that reflected on air? I'm all for independence in media, but I imagined Rupert Murdoch was a little more involved at Fox than he actually was, apparently. Anyway, I could go on, but there's more there. 
Yeah, but I mean, one of the things we found, there was this text thread, right, with Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram. And, and Tucker is losing it over uh, someone from the news division who basically just sent out a tweet fact-checking a bogus claim that Donald Trump had made about election fraud. And you have Tucker basically saying, I think he literally says, look, this is measurably hurting the company. Our stock price is going down. <laughs> we have to give the people what they want. And what the people wanted was election fraud conspiracies. Yes, he said that this needs to stop immediately. What he's saying needs to stop is the fact-checking. It needs to stop immediately. It's measurably hurting the company. And, you know, on that day, the stock did drop like 2.5%. It obviously bounced right back, and the stock was not actually affected by that young reporter's fact-check. Fox Corporation's doing just fine. But that palpable, like, fear, that panic inside Fox, it helps us to understand who really is in charge of the network. And the answer is... The audience, the increasingly extremist-minded audience, this is a supply and demand story. And we focus a lot on the supply, but there was a demand, a real demand, to be told that Trump might still have a chance, that he might still win, that Biden might not become president, that, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's that part, it's the supply part, that we're still having to live through now, you know, two, three years later, that a lot of people want to be lied to. That's the thing, right? I mean... The cynicism, the nihilism, really, of people like Tucker and, and Hannity and Ingram, right? Like, they're not journalists. I mean, I, that's not a <laughs> that's not a, a bold, fresh claim. But they're also not even ideologues, right? That's too generous, like because that implies that there are some principles of some kind, right? They're literally just performers. They're just doing theater, and that is a a really important distinction. That is what comes across in the emails from in the text from November 2020, the performance aspect. Where I would add a you know a layer is some of them also very much do want to advance Republican policy positions and, and principles, right? And you know, Laura Ingram and others, like they they also want to elect certain people for certain outcomes. But that idea of feeling held hostage by the audience and needing to sit, like there's a quote in, in one of the filings about how. The executive said they needed to respect the viewers. This was all about respecting the viewers. It's a great euphemism because by respecting the viewers, they were actually showing disrespect. I think it's really, it's been worthwhile to go through these filings because that that month, November 2020, it really did set up the rest of our politics for the decade. Because by starting the big lie and by, by getting millions of people to at least pretend to believe Trump won, right? Because a lot of this is like, you have to say the right thing to the pollster to show you're you're on the right team, right? In doing so, you know, I think it, it set up a situation that we're still in today with regards to the right-wing media and its control over the party, Tucker Carlson's power in particular, his stranglehold over the Republican Party. And all those conditions are affecting our politics now. Maybe we disagree a little bit here. Maybe we, we don't. You know, I mean, I, I've always heard people refer to Fox as a propaganda machine. I think I've done that before as well. And look, I don't know. Who knows what's in the heads of these on-air personalities, really? But I've backed away from the idea of Fox as a propaganda machine because I really don't see a consistent ideological objective, even if there may be some vague one undergirding it all. Hmm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it is just reality television. And to my mind, they really could care less what they're selling, right? They just need the audience to buy it or they need the audience to be so invested in the storylines that they don't care that it's fake, right? It's like watching WWE. It's kayfabe. This is what you tweeted last month. You said no one yeah. has a lower opinion of conservative voters than conservative media. And I really believe that. Part of my contempt for someone like Tucker, right, is the contempt, I think, 
he has for his audience. You know, I'm from Mississippi. I, I moved back here a few years ago. A lot of people around here watch. You know, you go into diners or, or barbershops or whatever. It, Fox News is on all over the place, right? But for me, watching someone like Tucker lie to his audience while pretending to be some kind of I'm just like you populist is absolutely infuriating. Mm. This is, I'm pulling up the quote from Hoax uh, with this former Fox and Friends producer who he's just, he gave up. He, he felt, you know, so disenchanted and he quit. But he said, I realized, you know, one day we were doing a segment, some anti-marijuana segment, and then he goes to a house party with a bunch of his colleagues and everybody's getting high. And he says, okay, so we don't really believe all this stuff. We just tell other people to believe it. Right. And that's the kind of anonymous thing that I feel like has been affirmed in these, in these filings. But let's talk about the ideology. Isn't there a, a clear ideology of return America to the 50s, of make America great again, white identity politics? Isn't that the the through line for Fox? Or you're saying they would just pick a different lane if that's what the audience demanded? Oh, let me be clear. Yes, that is a through line. But I think it's a through line by accident, right? Mm. I don't think Fox is a conservative network, not in a real coherent way, although maybe they perhaps started out with those ambitions. At this point, it exists to flatter the delusions of its audience. It used to be the principal engineer of those delusions, but now you have this broader right-wing info space that does a lot of that engineering. And Fox now is just sort of hostage to that because their audience is. And so whatever overriding objective they may have, ultimately, this is part of what we learn, right? The audience is the boss. <laughs> That's what they want. That's what they're going to give to them, right? And if it was something else, they'd give them something else because ultimately ratings is king. I do think the rise of someone like Jesse Waters reflects what you're saying. Who's someone who's extremely online, who's reacting to memes, who's making inside jokes about the day's right-wing web story. Uh, this is something I want to study further, the idea that what Fox is doing is just, you know, they're just reacting to what's hot on the right-wing internet that day. There's a lot of truth to that, yeah. I just don't think they have the kind of control. The space is too fragmented for that. And honestly... I don't know what you think about this. I, right-wing media doesn't really have anywhere else to go at this point. I mean, the, the business plan has been to create an alternative reality to whatever the mainstream news is reporting. And so it really doesn't matter what's true or false, right? They only have one option here. You have to present a counter-narrative because if the whole reason for being is that the rest of the media is hopelessly biased. You can never concede what they're, <laughs> what they're reporting, right? If you do that, you're useless to your audience. You've betrayed your whole reason for being. Right. When you say that, I think about January 6th and Fox's reaction to it, because Fox's journalists were on Capitol Hill. They saw the violence. They saw the truth. And then at 8 p.m., Tucker Carlson came on that night and said, while the police are trying to restore control and enacting a curfew. And he says to the viewers, looks him straight in the eye, he says, this was not your fault. This was their fault. And so he instantly sets up the counter-narrative. The counter-narrative about left-wing protesters really being the agitators, all of that gets set up right away. And to me, I always go back to Tucker saying, it's not your fault. He's going to make sure that the audience doesn't feel bad. Um, it's going to make sure they're the victims. As opposed to covering the news, <laughs> cover the story, tell the truth about what happened. He has to go out and go get the Capitol Hill videos and try to present a counter-narrative that pretends like it was a happy-go-lucky, peaceful day. I guess what I'm then wondering is, it goes back to my thing about the Trump years. There's no repairing of this, right? There's no way to to put any of that back together, <laughs> if they only exist to have a counter-narrative to the rest of the media. I don't know what that would look like. 
it was so interesting reading some of those texts and stuff like that, the way they talk about their audience, right? These are good people. They're just, they're really hurt right now by, by losing the election. And and we have to delicately deliver the the news in a way that's going to be more palatable to them. So we can't tell them the truth. In other words, we got to keep this fantasy going a little bit so as to not upset their delusions or whatever. And that, and then the patronizing dimension to that is just makes my head explode. And that's where Fox is so different from CNN, MSNBC. You know, there's this fallacy that happens in the TV news world where we compare ratings between Fox and CNN and MSNBC as if they are actually competing with the same sets, for the same one set of eyeballs. Yeah. And I would get the spreadsheets and open them up and I would look at those numbers and the, the reality is that's not America. When... Donald Trump was elected in 2016, I was not emailing my colleagues at CNN worried about my audience's feelings. Why? Because my colleagues and I are journalists, not therapists. It's just a, a foundational difference with Fox that some people still want to overlook or, or pretend is not there. But these emails and texts have it. No, you can't do it. Look, I have my problems with MSNBC and CNN, but the difference with Fox, at least one difference, is victimhood is so essential to what they're selling, right? And that that requires a level of coddling and manipulation that doesn't exist elsewhere. And that's that is unique to Fox and the worldview they're selling, right? And the kind of the way they've branded themselves. They have boxed themselves in in that way, right? And like that's I don't see any way around that fundamental problem. Ultimately, you know this. <laughs> news is a product. You know, certainly TV news is a product, right? no different from soda or shoes. And viewers, customers know what they're paying for with their attention or their money. And if they don't get it, they're going to go shopping elsewhere, which just goes back to the point you were making, that the audience has all the power here. And Fox still has a near monopoly on that audience. I mean, it, it has managed to navigate that post-Trump environment in such a way that Newsmax, that One American News, that nobody's really been able to steal a big chunk of market share. I mean, Fox, you know, typical night, two to three million people watching at any given time of day, 1.5 million people watching. And of course, that's not the same 1.5 million, right? It's just tens of millions that interact with the brand every month. But the fact that you still have a million people watching in the middle of the night, maybe falling asleep with the TV on, it speaks to Fox's unique power in the market that no one, Newsmax, nobody else has been able to challenge it. So from a mathematical standpoint, they're doing something right. Do you think that though? lose any of their audience as a result of this story and all of this stuff leaking? I mean, I, I don't think they will, but uh, do you? I've been looking for any evidence of that, and I haven't seen any. Shows like Tucker have not taken a hit. It's just the buoy in the middle of the ocean going up and down. You can't really point to it and say that people have, have fled. What I do think is possible is around the margins. Some advertisers may be a little more sheepish about advertising on Fox. Some guests might be a little more hesitant to go on Fox. Some small number of moderate Republicans maybe, or Democrats maybe less interested in watching, but it's all around the edges. It's, it hasn't really, it has not had an effect. Do you think any of the people who work at Fox will reevaluate or reassess or step back and rethink any of what they're doing <laughs> as a result of this? Or have we basically just laid all the reasons why they won't and can't do any of that, no matter what happens? I have had more than one journalist at Fox call me in a very emotional state, reevaluating choices they've made. You know, you think about some of these folks are probably under a long-term contract. They might be thinking to themselves, well, maybe I'm going to leave in a year or two and my deal's up. But whether that happens or not, and, and whether it means much to Fox, look, I, at the end of the day, we've seen many journalists, the Shep Smiths, you know, the Carl Camerons, 
many people that identified as the news brand of Fox, they've left one by one, 10 by 10. And what remains at Fox is a relatively small news division, a really, really big opinion operation. And then I would actually say there's a third part of Fox, which is Tucker Carlson. I think of them as three different things that live uncomfortably in the same place. Because you now have Tucker going out doing his own quote-unquote investigations that the rest of the network ignores. The opinion shows ignore. You have Tucker propping up guests that the other shows would never touch. So it's really three in one, and Tucker's number one. He's the most popular. So what he does and who he books and what he says speaks volumes about the state of the party. You know, you saw that he sent out a survey about Ukraine and Russia to all the prospective Republican candidates. And I'm thinking to myself, even who he chooses to send that survey to is a statement of his power, right? And the fact that so many of them responded, of course, is also a statement of his power. But even the, the idea that he's in the position of, I'm going to decide who's a prospective candidate for 2024, he is flexing that power in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I don't see any reason to think that Fox as a network will pivot really in any way. But there is a, a lesson here about the relationship between media and reality, really. I mean, if, if you can see the basic point that there's a link between belief and behavior, right? then you have to accept that that the lies people with platforms of that size were telling about the election materially paved the way for what happened on January 6th, which you mentioned a little while ago, right? And you were making a similar point in, I think, your most recent piece for The Atlantic about you know the financial reporting on something like a bank run, right? Where media is actively affecting the world that they're covering, right? And, and I think that point is true and, and holds generally for the political press as well. Yes, there are reporters who knew Signature Bank was teetering and about to be closed and did not report it because they did not want to cause a literal run on the bank. And then you have Ainsley Earhart on Fox, I think it was that Monday morning, saying, well, we should go take all our money out if you're over $250,000. So you had responsible journalism and you had irresponsible talking heads. And Fox way too often is over in the irresponsible talking head side, which is why it's got to be scrutinized. Now, I, I would also add, there's journalists at Fox who would say, well, we are challenging the Biden White House like nobody else has the balls to do it. You know, that would be a defense of Fox. And by all means, like, I want Fox to have lots and lots of journalists. They should be reporting. They should be publishing pieces from a conservative point of view. The problem is not with that. The problem is with the deception, the constant deception the keeping viewers in the dark, all of those ills that we've talked about. And I just think it's important to draw a distinction between those because there could be an environment where Fox News is winning awards. There could be an environment where Fox News is a place that journalists want to work, but it's not that. Yeah, I mean, in the multiverse or some alternative timeline, that's <laughs> that's what Fox evolved into. But boy, that chip has long sailed because of the demand reasons we were talking about earlier. Right, and that's what gets us to January 6th. I remember a couple of days after the attack. Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, who was out there walking on Pennsylvania Avenue that day, he said it was a mass delusion event. Mass delusion event. And that phrase stuck with me, and you have to have media to get to a mass delusion event. You cannot have a mass delusion event without some form of mass media driving to that outcome. 100%. Social media plays a big part in mass delusions. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss how these platforms and the lack of gatekeepers has changed our industry forever.
Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. step back a little bit and maybe look a little bit at the big picture and where we're going you know on the final episode of your show reliable sources you said and now i'm quoting you that we're all members of the media now that's probably the biggest change that's happened while this show was on the air why was that such a huge change for you i think uh, you know i'm i'm not the intellectual here but i uh, oh stop it no but you know i am a product of this digital age where there are no gatekeepers. I was able to start creating web pages when I was nine or 10 years old, teaching myself HTML. And then when I was 18, launching a blog called Cable Newser, which became TV Newser, obsessively tracking TV news. And then because of that blog, the New York Times hired me and then uh, over to CNN. That wouldn't have been possible 20 years earlier. It would, it would have been impossible. That's why I say we are all members of the media now, that we all have those capabilities. And, and increasingly, if you're even posting on Instagram or TikTok, you are a member of the media. Even if you think about the, the experience of TikTok and what you choose to view and what you don't choose to view, how you're training the algorithm, you're almost acting as a producer. You're almost acting as a director. We're all in this. We're all doing this. And so we all have an ability in our little way to make the media environment healthier or more poisoned and more polluted. It's a game of inches, right? It's a game of inches and, and you can get a little better, or a little worse. I'd like to think that the newsrooms I've worked in, we're making the media environment a little healthier, but there's an awful amount of information pollution out there. So that, that's why I, I, I try to shift it on to in all of us. We're all involved in this. And you're making a point because we're all media now. We all have a platform that it's really silly to to say that the media is the enemy of the people, right? Which is which is very much in the in the ether. We're the media. Right. And of course that phrase is inane, right? The the media isn't the enemy of the people. The media, the media isn't even really a thing. But I do think it's a mistake to not at least try and think hard about why so many people have lost trust in mainstream media institutions. We've been, you know, pummeling Fox here as we should, but 
I don't think people are wrong necessarily to notice how commercial and sometimes ideological pressures drive our coverage, right? And there's just, it's hard to believe that those realities aren't part of the reason that some of these bad faith attacks that come from Trump on the media have the power that they do. Do you think there's legitimacy to that? And if you think that's wrong, I'm curious why you think so many people seem so inclined to distrust the press. In my happy new stay-at-home dad life, I get up with my kids and I get them breakfast and I, I flip through the morning shows in the network and the cable morning shows just to see what they're all covering. And the mix is almost always the same, except for maybe Fox and Friends, right? Which is in a, a different universe. But the Today Show, Good Morning America, two shows that I, I love to watch. I, I wrote a book about them a long time ago. Sometimes it's the same stories in the exact same order. It's going to be a winter storm or a tornado outbreak. It's going to be a murder mystery. It's going to be stuff that does not actually affect my life. Maybe the snowstorm's on the way here, but for the most part, what I'm trying to get at is, Sean, is what's the definition of news? What is news? If we think about the definition of news differently, and what's the best way to serve the audience? What does the audience most need to know today in order to be more informed and make better choices about the world around them? Then the shooting and, or, the, or the snowstorm may not be the story we would cover. And so I, I guess I think about trusted media and I think, well, are we earning the trust every day by covering the stories that are relevant to the audience? And it might be an interesting place to start that conversation, as opposed to going through the list of, you know, our self-inflicted wounds and pressure from politicians and attacks from this and that. All of that is true, but I, I kind of wonder, like, what if we started over? <laughs> so what if we had created a news environment? And this is where I'm going to fantasize, okay? What if we created a news environment that started from a position of, what do you not know about the world around you or your city, state, region? It's going to help you today. And once we've told you that information, you're not going to have to see it again. Like, one of the weirdest things about the news environment is you'll get 10 push alerts from 10 different outlets about the same thing. Your phone should be smart enough to only send one to you. Like, when I'm watching the news and for the third time in three hours, they're telling me about the same fire, my TV should be smarter than that. We shouldn't hear the same shit over and over and over again. I'm just trying to back it, back the truck way up and be like, okay, what is the, what is the media environment we could create or can be imagined that would be more trustworthy, that would earn more trust. I mean, can I just say, Lou, we've been bashing um, media institutions, but there's a demand side problem here that is independent of the supply side, right? Or, like, the problem is that people want to be entertained. People want to have their biases flattered, right? People want to be titillated in that way. If you offer them kale and ice cream, they're going to take ice cream, right? And like, in some respects, a place like Fox or, or any other media operation is giving their audience what their audience wants. And that's part of the dynamic. Right. One of the reasons why the morning shows, you know, always cover the snowstorm or the tornado outbreak is it's good video, right? It's right. interesting video and it, it makes you pay attention. Now, the producers and anchors doing that, they may not actually be like fully aware of that because I, I wasn't always and I'm not always self-aware now. But, you know, like when, when I was at CNN, like I would be texting if I was live on TV. I liked to um, call the banners. Like I would, I was such a nerd. I would write the <laughs> banners a lot of the times that were on screen because that way if it was a misspelling or a mistake, it was my fault. I was responsible. So I would text the, te the chain, let's change the banner to this. And 
And when I was doing that, I was partly doing that to try to keep the viewer's attention, right? To keep it interesting, to keep the viewer watching. And I don't think I was really aware of that in the moment. I was just trying to, you know, trying to make the show better. But my point is, when you do take a step back, it is about the commercial, you know, impulses that you're describing. But those commercial impulses, there's also a huge audience that's not tuning in at 7 a.m. There's a huge audience that's not subscribing to X, Y, or Z. What I see is an enormous potential for different brands, for new brands, for old brands, to reach people different ways. Like there's huge business opportunities out there, not to reach news junkies, because news junkies are pretty well served, but to reach more casual news consumers. And those casual news consumers tend to be less trusting. They're not as confident in, in, in the sourcing. So, you know, there's hopefully would be ways to win some of those folks back. I guess I'm thinking in, in the kind of startup world in a little bit here, like what could be built, what can be made new that would help win trust back? It's hard to say, you know, I mean. Aren't we in an environment now where like when, when I log on to Instagram, uh, who knows why I'm getting this stuff in my feed, but you know, like, What's that thing about the lifestyles of the rich and the famous? You know, 20, 30 years ago, there was one show on TV that showed you how rich the rich really were, right? And then there was MTV's Cribs, and you would watch, and you'd be really jealous of some rapper's apartment or house. But that was it. And now, every day, 24-7, if I want to, I can just stare into the lives of billionaires all day long and just soak in it and get fucking angry about it, right? And there's a version of that about media that the causes distrust the media. If I just want to sit there and stew about the screw-ups of the mainstream media, I can do that all day, 24-7. Just sit down and watch Fox, and I'll just be told all day long how evil the media is. But, you know, we were making mistakes 20 years ago. They just, they weren't amplified and obsessed over by an adversarial uh, independent... Do you see what I'm getting at? I do. I mean, look, let me... It is worth saying that there have always been commercial and ideological pressures in the media business. A huge difference today is that because of the internet, there's so much transparency, right? The public knows more, it can see more, and of course, it's been overwhelmed with more information than ever. Some good, lots of it bad, much of it just absolute, complete bullshit. In your final show, you would actually pose an even deeper question. Or actually, this was in your newsletter, your newsletter right after Trump had won, I think, in, in 2016. And you were asking, did all that fact-checking matter, right? Did the newspaper investigations matter? Did the editorials matter? Did the debates matter? Now, you may disagree with this, but I think the answer is, nope, not really. They didn't matter. But what I think you were really asking there was, is there any point at all anymore in trying to persuade people with arguments. Now, I happen to think that the press has been deeply confused about the whole post-truth crisis, and this gets back to what you were just saying, right? Truth has always been a function of authority, right? We are made or led to believe things about the world that we don't have direct experience, but we just simply trust people in positions of authority when they tell us that such and such is such and such. And when you that faith in authority goes away, we're sort of at sea. And I don't think we have a good answer as a democratic society to what we should do when the facts or when the reporting of the facts don't matter all that much because a huge subset of the country doesn't trust the people and the institutions doing the reporting. But that is, I think, where we are. Well, let's take the Fox scandal, which I believe is a scandal. And clearly many of my colleagues in the media believe is a scandal, Yeah, but which the right-wing media universe is barely touching. They've chosen to believe it's not a scandal, and their authority conveys that because they're not writing about it and not covering it and not focusing on it, that it's not a scandal. And then we get to these different media environments that are, that are wholly different. But we can see that happening in this environment as we speak. 
It also makes you think about, you know, 30, 40 years ago when the major networks decided that some presidential story was a scandal, and now that no one has that same convening power. I'd still, this is, this is, this is like the institutionalist in me, though, that would say the CNNs, the Washington Posts, the NBCs still do have a significant amount of that convening power and authority. I, I don't want to act like as if it all has been lost. It hasn't. The January 6th hearings were widely televised and broke through in a way that made a statement. So there is still some of that authority. It's just that as a, a minority in the country that is in a, such a different media ecosystem that there's no crossover. There's very little crossover. I mean, look, I'm an institutionalist too. I mean, we need institutions. We need institutions that are better than we are. We need institutions that create good incentives for the actors in our in our society, you know, and I'm glad people like you or people smarter than me are, are at least trying to think about how to build institutions that map onto the world we exist in today. I, I don't know what that would look like, but I just know that we need them because I also believe, despite everything I just said, that we can't abandon the aspiration of trying to persuade fellow citizens with the best arguments we can muster, whether they succeed or not. We can't abandon the aspiration of reporting to the public what's actually happening right now. I don't know what's possible. I don't know what the limits of persuasion are in this berserk world <laughs> that we've built in the digital age, but giving up on persuasion, giving up on reporting is also really just giving up on democracy. So I'm not going to do that. And I don't think anyone else should either. Mm -hmm. And when I hear you say persuasion to me as a reporter, it's like, well, let's put it new information out there and, and, you know, make sure people know what they're buying, what they're selling, what they're, what they're consuming, make people aware. That's where I get frustrated with debates about trusted media. Let's pick on my old home. You know, if it's CNN, 99 stories are correct and fair and, and right on the money. And then there's an obsession over the one that gets it wrong. I grew up in an environment where when you have to run a correction, like that's a painful moment. My editor would call me in at the New York Times and we talk about how I screwed up that person's name or that fact or that number. And like there'd be like a little slap on the wrist, you know, all but physically. And it would sting. And it made my work better. It made the New York Times stronger when we ran those corrections. And unfortunately, now we're in this environment where, where that's so weaponized and you know misused by bad faith actors. What I wish we could get made to the general public is how these newsrooms actually work versus how Jesse Waters or Laura Ingram pretends they work. And you know they ultimately do a real disservice to the public in that way by deceiving them about how the news media actually functions. I find myself desperate to make a distinction between reporters and repeaters, because most of what they're doing is just repeating and not reporting. About really those years, you know, we'll just call them the Trump years shorthand, really, really broke something and changed something about our society and, and certainly about the media and, and how it operates. What do you think that the biggest lessons were from this era that we're still sort of really in, in lots of ways? Do you think we've learned any important lessons? Or do you think we're still sort of disoriented by all of these changes? And we just simply, <laughs> we haven't got to the part of the story where, where we learn the, <laughs> we learn the lesson course correct? Hmm. Well, I, I think we have a very, very diverse media ecosystem in the United States in terms of, you know, lots of different styles and approaches and, and kinds of content. And what CNN did in 2018, for example, is different than what CBS did. And, and I think that's generally a good thing. And we should have that kind of variety. But I think it's clear that Trump punched the media in like its weakest spot. And the country, like in its weakest, most vulnerable spot. 
by trying to destroy a, the sense of shared reality and by convincing a significant number that only he was the truth. So in doing that, like that soft underbelly, that spot of us as a country, it's still there. Like it can still be exploited. Like it's still taking blows actually all the time. And that's, you know, that's what I don't want us to like lose sight of or, or have memories fade about. Whatever that was and that soft underbelly, like really has scrambled us. Now, here's my attempt at positivity, okay? My attempt about optimism. Same day I left CNN, complete coincidence, by the way, uh, I was already moving out of the city. I was moving out of the city. I was in the moving truck when the news broke that my show was being canceled. And I was moving out to New Jersey. And now I live in a you know red town, in a red county, in a blue state, an hour from the blue city. And it's been really helpful and, and interesting to live in an environment where, you know, some Trump signs, some tattered old Trump flags that are clearly several years old, and also a lot of folks who want nothing to do with politics <laughs> and don't want to hear it and don't want to talk about it and don't want to be divided by it anymore. And I guess what I'm trying to say, and I know this is far from a unique perspective, but like, it's been really great to recognize that um, most people like don't want to live in that war every day. They don't want it. Most Trump fans don't want it, and most Biden voters don't want it. And yes, there's 1.5 million people who watch Fox at all times, but even the Fox fans who, when I'm in line picking up my daughter at school and they're going to be right behind me, like, they don't hate my guts. I don't have any animosity toward them. I guess maybe we're better than our partisan media. <laughs> like, maybe uh, as a society, and it, you know, we've got some problems, obviously, with political violence on the rise. We have real issues, but maybe the vast majority of us are better than our partisan media. Is that delusional? No, hell no. I, I really don't think so at all. I mean, I think because so much of the incentives in, in this world push in the direction of spectacle and outrage, it tends to elevate all of the heat. Yeah, you know, it, it's a, totally it tends to elevate the the fringe in, in lots of ways, and I think that can create a very distorted impression. Right, and it's not like I moved out of Manhattan expecting to like end up at a MAGA rally, but it's that like, oh, just please don't talk politics. It's that feeling has been really helpful to hear and see and think about. 80% of the country is not on Twitter. <laughs> I think like 10% of the users on Twitter are responsible for like 90% of the content or, or something. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a funhouse mirror, right? And if, you, <laughs> if you're too online or if you inhabit this world too much or too exclusively, you can, I think, really get a distorted picture of, of, of things. You know, what's the only positive story in media right now? I mean, it's not, you know, big tech layoffs. It's not just shrinking networks and all that. It's the rise of independent media in all these different ways. So, you know, there's another optimistic thought for you. Well, look, I really appreciate your time. Be before you get back into the frenzy, enjoy. Just it, lean into the stay-at-home dad thing. That's right. And um, maybe we'll see you whenever you... You can't resist the urge. <laughs> Do you, does your Substack have a name? Where can people check out if they want to at least get on the get on the list? And you know, yeah, I have started sending out little emails. It's brianstelter.substack.com. Brian Stelter, thank you for for coming in today. Thank you. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I really enjoyed that one. I'm not quite the media nerd Brian is. 
but I am interested in these big picture conversations about what has happened to our industry and why and where it's going. And Brian is a pretty keen observer of that. As always, let us know what you think about this one. You can send us an email at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.